The Bob Murphy Show, episode 68. There's a tidal wave coming. What you gonna do? Get ready for another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. The podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. It's your source for commentary and interviews, conducted by a Christian and economist. Now here's your host, Bob Murphy. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. Let me clarify in case some of you are confused, you thought you knew the pattern. I had been alternating where I would have on the even-numbered episodes, a solo one where I just talk about things, and then the odd-numbered episodes was the guest interview, and that was my intention to, to maintain that pattern, but this particular interview that we're about to showcase for you guys was somewhat time-sensitive that we were responding to current financial events, and so I just slid this into the slot that had originally been intended in my mind for a solo episode. So in case you're confused, that's what's going on here. With all that out of the way, let me now say my guest is going to be Jeff Snyder, and I'm gonna his bio is pretty funny here that I'm going to read. So he's from Alhambra Investments, and his bio says, Jeff is the head of global research at Alhambra. Though his work makes it sound like he's an economist, he is no such thing. Rather, through intense personal study, he has developed a very different sense of especially the hidden inner workings of the global monetary system, beginning with the fact that it is a global money system. With a very unique starting point, Alhambra's research truly begins in a way that no one else's does. Okay, so I should probably mention as a disclaimer here, if I have guests on the show who are connected to other investment firms, things like that, I'm not, of course, necessarily endorsing everything they're doing, certainly not telling you to go invest with them. I just wanted uh, Jeff on because I saw some of his work. Also, he presented at the recent Libertarian Scholars Conference. I wasn't there, but I saw that he was um, slated to go ahead and present there. So I thought he'd be a good guy to bring on. The topic under discussion for this episode is going to be the flare-up in the repo markets that I'm sure some of you heard that. It happened in mid-September of 2019, and Jeff has been covering this issue for some time now, and now all of a sudden, everybody's talking about the thing that he's been working on for a while. And so he seemed like a very interesting guest to bring on. So with all that out of the way, I hope you now enjoy my discussion with Jeff Snyder. Well, Jeff, welcome to the Bob Murphy Show. Thanks, Bob, for inviting me. Pleasure to be here. So as I probably alluded to in the introduction here that the listeners just listened to, um, I came across, I don't remember exactly how I came across it on Twitter or something, somebody linked to you with some of your stuff. And I, th I thought, okay, this guy's got a, a nice perspective. Like, you, you know, you sound like you know what you're talking about. So that's always a plus, you know, <laughs> when I'm <laughs> saying who do I want to bring on the show. It's uh, not, a, not a, a, a sufficient condition, but necessary. And I, I like the angle you were taking, and and so I thought you'd be a good person to have on here to first of all just bring people up to speed about what the heck is going on in the repo market, and then also your opinion as to you know what's causing this thing, and then you know do the do the central bankers of the world really know what's going on, and do they have the situation under control? Nothing to see here. And as as the listeners can guess, um, since I have you on here, that you know you're you're not going to answer in the affirmative to those those latter questions. So for the benefit of people who just really vaguely understand these things, what is a repo market? Why don't we start there? That's pretty simple. 
Well, the repo market is nothing more than uh, secured interbank lending. So it's it's essentially a funding market where you can fund assets that go onto a balance sheet. And the way you do it is you put up collateral, which is supposed to make it the, the most safest type of funding that, that you can imagine that's out there. Because there's a security behind it, just like, you know, when a mortgage is secured by a, a piece of real estate, in this particular funding market, the lending relationship or the, the interbank transaction is secured by collateral, financial collateral, some kind of security, whether it's a, a treasury bond or something else. So the person who's putting up the cash for the transaction has some safety and security, which makes repo uh, essentially, what, or at least it's supposed to be, a very easy place to do your funding business. Okay, and the term itself stands for repurchase agreement. And so the idea, let me just say, and you just tell me if I said anything wrong. So the idea is, as you say, the, the economic essence of it is the, the party that wants to borrow cash puts up something really safe, like a treasury bond is the collateral. But strictly speaking, because it's a repurchase agreement, what's happening is the entity that needs the cash is selling like the treasury to the other party in exchange for cash but then also agreeing contractually, I'm going to buy that back from you in a very short term, like maybe tomorrow or two weeks down the road. And then I'm going to pay you back a little bit more than what you're paying me now for. And so that's how the implicit interest is paid as well. Is that as well as the basics of it? Yeah, that's the basics of it. But, you know, there's a very tortured history behind the repo market that gets into the why it's called a repurchase agreement in, in, the, in the older days. It actually was a purchase and a sale. So in essence, you're agreeing to sell a security and buy it back, you know, at a, at a predetermined time. Um, but that gets into all sorts of other details about who owns the assets while the transaction is going on. And there was a whole bunch of, of court cases, Supreme Court cases, tax law that defined, you know, is this really a repurchase agreement or is it really a collateralized overnight loan? And it doesn't have to be overnight. It can be term loan, but essentially most of these are overnight loans. And what happened over time, especially in the 70s and 80s, that evolved into it's not really a repurchase agreement. That's what we call it. And so it's the shorthand of repo because it's actually a collateralized interbank overnight loan. There's no actual transfer of title involved. The collateral posted is really, you know, if I'm borrowing cash from you and putting up a U.S. Treasury bond as collateral, I still own the bond, even though it's in your possession. So the term repurchase agreement doesn't necessarily apply in the way it's used in the modern sense. So, you know, uh, what you need to know is that it's, it's a collateralized interbank overnight funding arrangement. Okay, that's interesting. And I even noticed, too, a few years ago when the Fed really started engaging in reverse repos, I think is what the thing that I was looking at. And it, it depended on which series you were looking at, like whether the Fed's balance sheet changed or not. Like in some treatments, they were counting it, you know, the, oh, no, we didn't get rid of these assets in other, other places they were. So I think that does line up with what you're saying in terms of who still owns the underlying asset that's serving as a collateral on these things. Okay, so that so that's what the thing is. All right, so it's a, a, a place where people, where firms go for very safe short-term loans and then what – why was this in the news recently? What was going on? Well, what happened recently in the middle of September, September 16th, was that the repo rate, the general collateral rate, and that well, that, what that means is the rate of the cash that's being charged by the person who owns the cash. So if I have a treasury bond and I'm seeking to fund my positions in the repo market, the GC rate is, is essentially what I would have to pay for that loan. And so the GC rate spiked, and it spiked really high. 
And as it did, what that meant was that the marketplace, there weren't a lot of people offering cash for whatever collateral. And so that you have to start asking questions about, okay, why was that? What, you know, where were the people who were supposedly had cash? It's an unusual occurrence when you see something like that happen, especially in, in a place like the repo market that's supposed to be highly liquid, highly efficient, highly flexible. And then all of a sudden it wasn't. And all of a sudden it wasn't in a way that caught everybody's attention, including policymakers who up to that point had denied that there was anything going on in them at all. Okay. And so again, just for the listener who's who's new to this, and then we're going to start accelerating and getting into more details here. But the idea is these are supposed to be the, the interest rate that you're paying, you know, on an annualized basis is supposed to be pretty modest for these things because they're very short term, often overnight, and you have really good collateral. So you're putting up like a treasury or something. And so that's why you shouldn't have to pay that much to raise cash on such a short term basis. And yet the rate, it, it actually broke 10%, right? Yeah, on the following day, the Tuesday, it got into double digits, which was a record high. Again, which suggests that something really wasn't right that day and something abnormal enough that it got you know everyone's attention. Okay. And also, it was surprising, too, because in theory, we still, you know, the market should be awash in liquidity, according to the conventional narrative, that the Fed was just unwinding all of those unprecedented interventions. Now that the economy was back to normal, everything was fine. Thank you very much. And unemployment's real low, blah, blah, blah. So... That's why, again, on paper, this should not be happening. Um, yeah, and then, Bob, it happened on the same day the Fed was cutting rates, which was a double, you know, exactly what you were saying. We've been fed this narrative that the, the liquidity system's fine, that everything's great, the economy's awesome. But at the same time, the Fed has to cut rates, and we have this repo thing happen at the same exact time. So it was sort of like a double shot of, hey, something's going on here. Now, I, I'm familiar, you know, I've read some of your stuff here going into this. So for you, this is sort of uh, bitter irony, I suppose, that because you've been on this beat, let's call it that for lack of a better term, for a while now. And it, but now it's just other people are finally realizing there's something, you know, lurking in the, in the repo market. So do you want to talk a little bit about your background and why you're someone who's been following this for a while? Well, I've been following the the monetary system for, you know, 20 years. Um and I'm, what I mean by the monetary system is not what everybody else means by the monetary system. There is a global dollar system that exists out there. Um, you may have heard something about it around 2007 and 2008. The global financial crisis was not really about subprime mortgages. That's why there were so many global, you know, these overseas dollar swaps. That's why there were so many, you know, German banks being nationalized for what was supposed to be a U.S. real estate problem. There's a global monetary network. And that, that network, that system of how monetary resources and bank, really bank liabilities move around the planet, broke down you know, in August of 2007. And since then, though we've been told that quantitative easing is money printing and that it effectively solved the liquidity crisis, it hasn't actually done any of those things. And what, what we've observed over the last 12 years are these intermittent global dollar shortages, one of which uh, started to show up in – early part of 2018. So we've been talking about repo and federal funds for almost a year and a half before it actually uh, showed up in September. Um, and the reason is because the liquidity system, just in very broad general terms, doesn't function the way that it's supposed to. It doesn't function the way that, you're, that you've been told that it functions. And that quantitative easing was not money printing. It was at best an asset swap. And so therefore, 
you know, we could have this major liquidity problem that has been building for for quite some time that only now has shown up in the public consciousness because, you know, when the repo rate gets to double digits, it's it's really hard to ignore at that point. Okay, why don't you unpack some of those statements a little bit more again for the for the listener for whom this is pretty new. So that that was a pretty provocative claim right there, um, which just made. So just to elaborate, I, so I I know what you're saying, but again, for the benefit of the listener, when you say that oh QE was not money printing, at least as conventionally understood, that it was more of an asset swap. Um, it's, it's a, what what do you mean by that? Well, you know, money printing and look, every financial article that was written about quantitative easing says it's money printing. Every time we refer, refer to the byproduct of quantitative easing, which is bank reserves, it's referred to as base money. And so, you know, the idea that this is an increase in the level of base money is a pervasive one. And it's one that, you know, hey, the authorities all say this is what it is. The financial media all says this is what it is. Therefore, that must be what it is. But when you actually look at what it actually is, is nothing more than, hey, the Fed bought some assets and created a uh, what for them was a liability to offset it. So they bought a treasury bond from a primary dealer bank. Quantitative easing was nothing more than buying a financial asset and switching it from that financial asset to what's called a bank reserve. So in terms of the banking system, all it was is they traded a bond for what's now a bank reserve. It was an asset swap, one for the other. And you can actually make the argument that it was an unhelpful one because it removed collateral from the repo market. And it also traded it for you know, bank reserve, which doesn't pay very much and it's not very dynamic. So in a lot of ways, uh, that's, that's the best case scenario for quantitative easing. It increased the Fed's balance sheet, but that was just exchanging one form of asset for another. And what I tell people is, look, you go back to before 2008 when the Fed's balance sheet was quote unquote normal, there were no bank reserves in the system at all. Prior to uh, around September 2008, the level of bank reserves in this multi-trillion dollar system was about $10 billion or so. So there was no bank reserves. And yet the repo market, federal funds market, all of these funding markets that exist around the world, they all function fine. So how is it that this private funding market can exist and function very well without the existence of bank reserves? And the reason is because there's a private system, this private global system of liquidity. So when the Fed came along and instituted quantitative easing and increased its balance sheet and its and the level of bank reserves, it wasn't actually printing new money. It was trying to offset what was a huge gap in this other private system. Okay, so here let me sort of play devil's advocate, or you know, someone taking the position of the defending the orthodox view of what the Fed has been doing. Wouldn't they say, okay, yes, it was working fine. But then with the, you know, the spike in short term rates and now especially like the sort of thing we're seeing in the repo market, clearly there are people in the marketplace who want actual, you know, U.S. dollars and they can't use treasuries. And, and that's why you saw the funding rates go up to plus 10 percent that people you know who had treasuries and wanted to swap them for dollars couldn't get them. So that's why it's not merely an asset swap if the Fed comes in and buys up treasuries and injects dollars in exchange for that. That's what the market wants. They want the dollars. Well, yeah, it's a it's a matter of who's supposed to supply them, right? Um, you know, again, we've been told that that's the exclusive domain of the of the central bank. So therefore, if there's a dollar shortage, it must be the central bank that needs to step up and supply them. But that's just not true. Again, as I was saying before, the private global dollar system was the source of dollar liquidity through all of these markets, repo, federal funds, FX, all these other various funding markets that exist and that are huge. 
Um, it was the private system that, that actually supplied those dollars. And they're, they're not real dollars. They're virtual dollars. Um, and they exist in offshore capacity, which is another factor we can maybe get into a little bit later. But by and large, it's the private system, not the central bank that supplies dollars. And again, you can see that in the level of bank reserves. And what happened over you know the last year and a half or so, in fact, the Federal Reserve has been counting on the private system to step up and supply dollars. That's the whole point behind quantitative tightening, QT, which is supposed to be the opposite of QE. You know, quantitative tightening is the Fed saying, okay, we think we we think everything's fine. We think there's plenty of liquidity out there. We're now going to take a step back from this for the first time since 2008. We're going to start drawing down our balance sheet. We're going to reduce the level of bank reserves. And the reason we're doing that is because we know that the private system is supposed to step in and take over again like it did before the crisis. And in fact, that didn't happen. And that that's really the main message of the repo market last month was the fact that, hey, where are where's the private system? Even the Fed was counting on the private system to come in and take over the liquidity functions, and it didn't. So the question isn't really about the level of bank reserves. It's where are the private dealers? They're supposed to be there, and they're not. And for the first time, the public says, oh, something's not right here. The dealers aren't there. The private system isn't taking over the way it's supposed to. So I guess in a nutshell, what's your like what what's your diagnosis? What what is happening? Why why did the Fed's plan backfire? Well, for one for one thing is the system, you know, it never it has never been fixed. That's the really the overriding the overriding theme here is that the Fed believes that everything that happened in 2008, that's all done with. It's all in the past. Everybody's moved on. We're into a new paradigm of growth and inflation again. And that's just not the case. The monetary system has never been healed. And one reason why, one big reason why is the repo market. The repo market has existed under what's you know, essentially a collateral shortage. There isn't enough of the best quality collateral for people to – for. when I say people, I really mean uh, you know, mostly banks and financial institutions, not just in the U.S., you know, that's what I was talking about before with offshore. This is a global system where everybody trades and, and funds in U.S. dollars and U.S. dollar positions. So there's really a shortage of the best quality collateral to work in the repo markets. And because of that, that's one constraint upon why haven't we moved past 2008? Why haven't we moved past the financial crisis? And a big reason is because there's a collateral problem. And it's a collateral problem the Fed doesn't have any real ability to fix. In addition to that, and because of that, and some of this is self-reinforcing, these private dealers that we're all expecting to pick up the liquidity functions again for the first time in a decade, they're also constrained. They can't just do the things that they used to do before 2007. Some of that is regulations, you know, things like HQLA and LCR. Those are, you know, those statutory obligations to do the things that the dealers have already done in terms of their behavior. What's really going on is, is even more simple or more basic than that. Before 2007, in these liquidity functions, in these liquidity markets, the attitude was there was no risk. You could just do whatever you want as much as you want. And I'm, I'm oversimplifying a bit, but basically that's what, that's what happened. And so you know, dealers supplied whatever liquidity was needed to be supplied because they thought there was no downside to it. And that's the real, the real reason there was such a break in 2008 was once Bear Stearns nearly failed, it taught everybody, hey, there is a downside to all of these things. There is a downside to doing a repo where the other side of the, the collateral you're taking in in the repo is some toxic waste subprime mortgage tranche. And so, you know, the dealers took a step back, literally and figuratively, and reevaluated whether or not they wanted to participate in these kinds of things because they saw for once that there was actually risk in providing this kind of liquidity. That behavioral change 
has remained as the the overriding factor in all of this. So the Fed said everything is fine. We went back to normal. The dealers said now you know we're never going back to the way it was before 2008, and that's what happened. Those two positions finally collided in public last month. Okay, yeah. So just to unpack some more of that, because on the one hand. You know, since treasuries, for example, are part of the, you know the really safe collateral in these markets, it it might seem counterintuitive to say there's a shortage of collateral. Since the you know, in other words, I could see the federal government saying, "What are you talking about? We've been running yeah. deficits like crazy. We're doing everything we can." So yeah, and I know a lot of people have the same reaction. It's like you know, the Fed or the 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 federal government is supplying as much collateral as they can, and uh, it seems almost a almost a paradox, right? I mean, the, the more the the government goes broke. Some more the, the the liquidity system wants to buy that paper, and but that you know but then it gets to what we're talking about, which is the liquidity risk overrides any concern for the uh, fiscal and insolvency situation of the federal government because we need that collateral in the repo market. It's demand. It's in such high demand, it it overwhelms any common sense view of hey the federal government's really really broke and it's it's not getting better at, at any point. Okay, let me yeah. So let me try it this way. So is so your your claim is not. I'm, I'm taking it, just, especially given your response to what I just said. Your claim is not that. Um, oh yeah, the federal government has engaged in too much austerity, and then it caused this scarcity of collateral. It's that for other reasons, the market is is more fearful now than it was pre 2007. And so, am, am I? Is that? Line up with what you're saying. Yeah, and it, and uh, an easy way to think about it is before 2000, before the crisis, um, the repo market was filled with not just treasuries treated as the best collateral, but also mortgage bonds, the mortgage bond market, and any and agency bonds too, which are you know the GSEs that get involved in the mortgage market too. So you have to think of a lot of the collateral, what was treated as the best quality collateral in the system up until the the, the housing bubble was the assets of the housing bubble itself. And so all of those subprime and prime mortgage tranches that were, you know, rejected during the crisis up until then had been treated in the repo market as the same as treasuries. So as the crisis evolved, what happened was the repo market started to reject all of those mortgage bonds, all those MBS securities and said, you know what, we're just not going to take them or we're not going to take them on the same terms as we're taking treasuries and repo. And so effectively, the collateral list, all the stuff that's the, the really highly prized, pristine collateral – that list got paired almost in half at the onset of the crisis. So that was a big shock to the system, number one. But number two is there's nothing that took its place in the aftermath of the crisis. There was no supply equal in size and equal in treatment to the way mortgage bonds had been used in the repo market before 2007, 2008. So when I say there's a collateral shortage, that's what I really mean is that mm -hmm. all those mortgage bonds that used to be treated like treasuries no longer are. And so – and then, you know, you know, quantitative easing actually made it worse because it, that was the Fed taking treasuries out of the marketplace and putting them in their own SOMA portfolio. So there, there's been a lack of anything, lack of a, a good, good enough, sizable enough substitute to what used to be, you know, those mortgage bonds in the repo market. And that's why in times of stress and trouble, treasury bonds, especially for repo use, are in such high demand. Okay, great. So let, let me ask this uh, question. Couldn't someone say, well, well, you know, when we use the term scarcity, of course, you know, and, and strictly speaking, a scarcity just means that the, the price is too low. You know, that if you just if you had freely floating prices, whatever the quantity is, you know, that the price would adjust so that the quantity demand equals quantity supplied. So 
is really what going on that it's unrealistic and it was it was wrong. I mean, clearly the the rates uh, for borrowing in the short term market with MBS being the collateral prior to two thousand seven, those were the wrong prices. They the people were greatly overestimating how safe those things were, or underestimating the risk involved going the other way. And so maybe, you know, the 10% rate that we just recently saw is the correct rate. Maybe, you know, in other words, given the realities and people now more soberly assessing the risk of the, a lot of the the bonds involved that, that maybe, you know, why is it this given, you know, God given fact that the short-term lending rate ought to be below 3%? Like who, who says? Maybe it's not supposed to be that. And the Fed's just trying to maintain this illusion by punching it down. Yeah, and I think it's a little bit stranger and weirder. In fact, I know it's a lot stranger and weirder than even that because um, what you're saying, I think, is is it gets to the heart of the matter is that you know the repo market isn't as straightforward as we're talking about. We're we're oversimplifying a lot of things just to make it easier for people to understand what's what actually goes on in this space. But what happens in the collateral part of the things, uh, especially um, you know, given the fact that there's there's has been this overriding shortage is, um, you know, it's tough to explain. It's it's tough to uh, really detail for people who are used to this kind of thing. But when you get involved in things like securities lending, securities transformation, essentially what has happened is that at various times over the last 12 years, the system itself has tried to make up for that shortage of collateral by doing some really strange and in, in some ways, some some really, um, I don't know if the, the right word for it, but, you know, things that really make your skin crawl. They've taken... What is essentially when we talk about something like securities transformation, they've taken what is essentially a junk bond and borrowed, uh, swapped it for a U.S. Treasury. I'm talking about you know one financial counterparty to a, a essentially a, a bank dealer, and then the party that is that starts with the junk credit has now swapped it for a U.S. Treasury credit and then takes that Treasury credit into the repo market because otherwise you show up in the repo market with a junk credit, you're not going to get the same terms, which is what you were talking about. You know, maybe what is the real what is the real rate that should be in the repo market? Well, the repo market only sees that Treasury, even though the Treasury isn't really belong to the person that's presenting it to the repo market or the financial counterparty that's presenting it to the repo market. And so there's been a lot of securities transformation that takes place uh, especially in the last few years in the global repo market that has essentially hidden or um, masked a bunch of risky behaviors that I think these dealers probably understand very well, not only the nature of those risks, but also the degree to which they've happened. And so one of the reasons I think that they are increasingly shy and sitting on their hands, no matter what the repo rate rises to, is because they know that the collateral system you know, the way that the system has tried to deal with the collateral shortage by essentially manufacturing new collateral in very unsavory ways, that it presents another another sense of risk that they're then taking as, hey, you know, I, I don't really want to do this liquidity stuff because I know that there's a lot more risk out there than people probably uh, realize is taking place. Okay, yeah, th- that's a good clarification. By the way, I think I misspoke in case I have some people getting ready to email me. What I meant was in economics, if the price adjusts, there's no shortages. I think I might have said scarcity. There's always scarcity. So right. I, I may have had a slip of the tongue there. Um, okay, well, all right, that, that's good, Jeff. I appreciate that. And obviously with this stuff, I realize too, you're constrained that, you know, you got to decide how how much detail do I want to give here? <laughs> and so then if I say, wait a minute, but that doesn't make sense. You say, well, because I simplified. 
Um, yeah, you know, and it's, it's it's really important to note that this stuff goes on, and people should be aware that this stuff goes on. It's really complex stuff. It's bizarre stuff. In a lot of ways, it's antithetical to the very idea of capitalism. I mean, even our, our initial discussion with repurchase agreements, you know, a repurchase agreement is supposed to mean something. You know, who owns the, the bond when it's um, mm-hmm. when it's in, you know, your possession or my possession? And then, you know, because that was settled out as a repo versus an actual purchase and sale – that opened the door to all these other things like rehypothecation, for example. You know, I'm going to send, I'm going to use my treasury that I actually own. I have title of the treasury. I give it to you to a funding arrangement, but you also use it. And then the you, the, the person you give it to, they also use it. And so that mm-hmm. that that you know, what is ownership? What is you know, what is possession? What is property in this this type of financial security? In the way the things work, it really gets stretched in very bizarre and in some ways. To the degree that you know, it's well beyond the level of sound and prudent practice. And so that's you know one of the reasons why there was a financial crisis was because of that, because a lot of these things go on that people just don't realize these things go on, and they're still happening. Maybe not to the same extent that they were before, but there's a lot of this you know, this 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 strange, odd, imprudent behavior that takes place because. That's the way the system has been set up, and that's the way the system actually works. It doesn't work the way that you've been taught in school. It doesn't work the way that Jay Powell says when he gets on TV. The system actually works in all of these other these, these sort of hidden ways, which is why I like to refer to this stuff as shadow money and shadow banking. People probably heard the term shadow banking 12 years mm-hmm. ago, but they, you know, then it just disappeared. Well, shadow banking and shadow money didn't disappear. Just people forgot about it because they were dazzled by QE. Yeah, I mean, a lot of this stuff, it, it is interesting how it pops up. Um, for example, I don't know if, if you're aware, Jeff, but, um, you know, Patrick Byrne, the, I guess he's he resigned recently, but the former CEO of, of Overstock, for a while, he was just having this public war against naked short selling and just saying that, you know, there, there are people that if, if certain financial institutions wanted to go, you know, punish somebody, they could just engage in, you know, shorting the stock, but then not actually having it you know, or not, not obtaining it. And so it's kind of like, well, should you even be allowed to do that? Yeah. It's, you're just creating something out of thin air and it's, 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 you know, I, you understand the position because there's, there's no constraint while there is constraint, but you know, theoretically there could, there might not be any constraint, but then you put that into something like the repo market and the securities transformation and securities lending business. Um, Now we're talking about, you know, that same type of, of behavior in a monetary system. That's even more because that affects everybody. The mon- global mon- whether you whether you realize it or not, the global monetary system affects everybody around the world, and that's one reason why we're really talking about all this stuff today. Is because look, the impact of a dollar shortage is not just you know something for the U.S. economy. It's a fact that if, you know why is the German economy look like it's in recession? Why is Europe falling into recession? What's going on in China, uh, Brazil, emerging markets? All of these all of these places are reacting to this dollar shortage, and the reason is because. Nobody really understands what goes on in the dollar system. And a lot of the stuff that does go on in the dollar system makes your skin crawl. Yeah. Yeah. Good stuff here. Let me turn to, so I'm going to, I'm looking here at folks who we'll have in the show notes page, of course. So this is bobmurphyshow.com slash 68. But at uh, Alhambra Investments, Jeff, you had a post on September 19th. So just as this stuff was going down, um, I guess this would have been what, three days after it started flaring up. And you have some interesting statements in here, but one of them that I really liked was uh, that you were saying here. So I'll, I'll quote from this, Jeff, and then if you can just explain for the listener the context and what you're getting at here. You say, in other words, just as 
TAF, and that, that stands for what? Term Auction Facility? Yeah, that was the uh, emergency liquidity program the Fed came up with in December of 2007. Right, okay. So in other words, just as TAF was a bypass of the discount window, so too were these overnight repo operations that the Fed was doing. The discount window, or what's now called primary credit, still exists, and like those repo operations, it requires eligible collateral, just like in 2007, and nobody will ever use it no matter how bad things get. So can you just explain, you know, what, what are you getting at there? Because that, that was a really interesting uh, connection you drew there. Well, you know, the discount window, I think people under, people realize, you know, historically, that was where you went if you couldn't get funding, right? If you had problems in the marketplace, you couldn't borrow in Fed funds, you couldn't borrow in repo, you went to the discount window. That's the and, whole- and that's what the Fed did. That was, that was you were borrowing from, from the Federal Reserve. Right. You, but it was it was a collateralized thing. You couldn't just go to the Fed and say, hey, give me some cash. You had to go with some collateral. And that was the way the Fed, you know, sort of put constraints upon the, the lending at the, or the borrowing at the window was this, if you have good collateral, mm-hmm. we'll give you, we'll give you funding because and, obviously, and, and, yeah, sorry to interrupt, but just to connect it. Cause I know I have a lot of economists. So that's supposed to be like the modern implementation of Walter or um, what's his name? Who's the Badgett guy? What was Badgett. his first name? Yeah. Well, was it Walter? Anyway, Badgett, his first name, whatever it was, um, his famous dictum that the central bank ought to lend freely upon good collateral in times of a crisis. So yeah, the idea is, oh yeah, if the firm's insolvent or whatever, yeah, you, you let them go down. But if it's, they're merely illiquid and they're a sound enterprise and they have good collateral, they're just illiquid. Then he thought, oh, that's the central bank acting as a lender of last resort. And so that's in theory what this discount window should be. The feds standing prepared to lend funds. But again, as you say, Jeff, they got to put up good collateral. Okay. So it's just, go ahead. Yeah. And that's what we're really talking about. All of this stuff is currency elasticity. And that's what the central bank is supposed to do. They're supposed to supply funding to the market when it needs it. And what happened in 2008 was they tried, but it didn't happen. There was no elasticity that we had a crisis in the first place showed that the, 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 the currency system was not elastic no matter what the Fed did. And specifically with regards to the TAF auctions, what they, what they found out was, hey, nobody will go to the discount window because as soon as you do, obviously the stigma associated with it, the market realizes – because you've gone to the discount window and because going to the discount window is public information, everybody knows you went to the discount window. As soon as you do, the rest of the market will just say, I'm not going to give you anything. So if you go to the discount window, that's the absolute last possible resort. That's your last day in business. And the way that the, the Fed tried to get around that in 2007, later 2007, was that they did these TAF auctions, temporary auction facilities, that were anonymous. So you could show up to the TAF anonymously posting collateral, but you couldn't do that at the discount window. So it was a way to bypass the discount window because, you know, the Fed thought we need to impose some elasticity in in terms of currency, but they weren't able to do that. Even the TAF auctions didn't really matter much. The the overseas dollar swaps that were instituted at the same time were essentially the same thing, trying to get the discount window to overseas financial institutions that were desperately short of dollar funding too. Because remember, this is a global dollar system, not just a domestic system. So you had the TAF and these overseas dollar swaps where, you know, how do we get, how do we get the functions of the discount window, but not using that without the stigma associated with the discount window. And that's what they came up with TAF and overseas dollar swaps. And what happened last month was a lot of the same kind of thing, you know, the, it's now called primary credit. It's not called a discount window or, this, or the discount rate anymore. It's called primary credit. So the discount window still exists, but it's called something else. And that still exists. That still happens. And so, you know, in the middle of September, if, if a financial firm 
who was trying to borrow in the repo market or in the federal funds market couldn't obtain funding, you know, they still could have gone to what's really the discount window, but they didn't. And they never, they're never going to. Nobody's ever going to go to the discount window. And so the overnight repo operations that the Federal Reserve came up with in the middle of last month were another way of, okay, we got to do something, but we, you know, because the discount window, the primary credit window just isn't going to function. Okay, yeah, and this was my fault. I just realized we never completed the loop in terms of just the basic timeline of events uh, in the beginning of this interview. So, so, so what did what did the Fed do, Jeff? They came in and they started doing emergency repo operations. So, just in terms of the mechanics, what actually was that that the Fed started doing? Yeah, on the on the second day, which was September seventeenth, a Tuesday, uh, which is when things really got upset. The Fed had to respond because the day before, because of what happened in repo, it pulled the federal funds rate up to the rate of, right to the upper bound. Um, the Federal Reserve sets a target range, which would allow the federal funds rate to move in. And that Monday, it happened to hit the upper bound, which meant, you know, there was a very good chance on Tuesday that it was going to break above the the upper bound, which would be a very public uh, notice to the to everyone that something was something wasn't going on here. So early in the morning on Tuesday, the Federal Reserve got together. They were already meeting in Washington to do the regular policy meeting anyway. So they were already they were already together. They decided we got to do something because the federal funds rate is going to break above its target, and that's going to show the world that there's something wrong in the funding markets, which we can't have. So they came up with these overnight repo operations, which were essentially the same thing as TAF, except they were they were limited in quantity. They were only open to I think the first one was 75 billion, and it was only subscribed to 50 53 billion or something like that. But really, all the Fed was doing was saying the 24 primary dealers that exist, which is a subset of the financial system, these particular banks that are set up to do business with the Federal Reserve and the, and also the federal government at auction. So these particular 24 large dealer banks. We're going to let them borrow funds at this overnight repo operation. The idea is that but by giving them these funds in the overnight repo operation, they'll then lend them into the marketplace. And that will bring these the repo rate, the federal funds rate, that'll bring these things down. But you can already see there's, there's a problem with the theory, right? Because you're not – the Fed isn't actually in, intervening in the repo market. It's not intervening in the federal funds market. It's giving a, a limited allotment of liquidity to these 24 dealers and then expecting that the 24 dealers will then do something in the repo market. But like 2007, what if those dealers take these funds and just sit on them, which is essentially what happened? Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. So that that's a separate issue, but but just to tie to the original concern, um, let me just paraphrase um, the, the, from the the quote that I read from you there. What what you were getting at? So the point was, if what the Fed is like the, according to the Fed's official story, what they were doing is just saying, oh, the market clearly, you know, there's pl- people who want to give up their treasuries in exchange for dollars, and because that the short term rate was rising pretty rapidly, it showed that there was a, an imbalance. And so we, the Federal Reserve, are going to come in. This is in September of 2019, they're talking. And we will, as a separate new program, have very short-term injections where we take somebody's treasuries and give them dollars that we create electronically. And that's how we're going to calm down these markets. And so your point was the discount window all along, or what they now call the primary credit rate, is a facility where anybody with with treasuries could have gone to the Fed and gotten a loan anyway. You know, the interest rate might have been different from some other one, but that was always sitting there. I mean, from from for a long time. This isn't some newfangled thing. And so why did they have to go this route? And you're saying because it, the people, the firms that needed the cash, it, that would be the kiss of death. If everybody publicly knew that they were going to the Fed and saying, yeah, we, we have a liquidity problem, 
then that would be a self-fulfilling prophecy. They'd be dead in the water if the public knew that. Yeah, absolutely. That's never that's never gone away. I mean, and it probably never will. The, the, the Fed should just close down the discount window, stop with the primary credit because nobody's ever going to use it. And that's why they're kind of forced into these backdoor, ad hoc, haphazard, you know, ridiculous programs to try to liquefy the markets that they can't really reach into. And that's another issue, too, if you want to get into technical issues. You know, you're right. The perception is and the perception the Fed wants to put forward into the marketplace and to the public is, hey, we've got this covered. You know, the rate went up. Don't worry about why it went up. It's no big deal. Uh, we're going into the marketplace with these overnight repo operations. Oh, by the way, they're no longer overnight. We got a couple of term auctions in there. And oh, by the way, now we're actually going to make this more of a permanent basis. So you don't, there's nothing to see here. There's nothing to worry about here. The Fed is intervening in the liquidity markets. And it's the same message that they sent in 2007. But functionally, when you break it down, you know, technically, what is the Fed actually doing? All they're doing is giving some cash or bank reserves to these 24 primary dealers and expecting and hoping, really not, not, not even, you know, planning on it, but just hoping that these primary dealers then do something productive with the cash that they're being given by the Fed. And that's, that's an assumption that's probably become much more of an uncertain one, especially over the last, you know, six to seven months. And you just reminded me what was hilarious in terms of looking at the mainstream, you know, like CNBC and those sorts of things, covering this as it was breaking and developing. They would say things like, I remember when it, when it first happened, there were a bunch of stories saying, oh, nothing to see here. All this is, is uh, there's some corporations that have their tax bill due. <laughs> and uh, oh, and, the, and the, the Treasury just, you know, issued some new bonds last week or what, you know, and, and now that's settling up. So they're making it sound like it was just a one-off, you know, oh yeah, these two fluke things that happened to coincide on the same day. And that's why there's some pressure here. But in the same, well, I don't know if it was the same story, but at the same time, like the same outlet, you know, another CNBC would be quoting people from hedge funds saying stuff like, yeah, I think the Fed should have a, a permanent uh, repo facility now. I was like, why do you need a permanent facility to deal with something that was just as one fluke thing? Like their own story didn't make sense. Well, yeah, no, that, Bob, that's actually true. It was, it was, you know, what happened in September was not a credit event. It was not like, hey, this is 2008, things are going down, this is a chaos and it's a crash. What happened was, you know, the, the things that were on, put on CNBC, you know, the corporate tax collections, treasury, those things were actually true, but also irrelevant. You know, there are seasonal low points for liquidity sprinkled all throughout the calendar. The, and the thing is, everybody knows them. Everybody knows them ahead of time. You know, the, what happened in the middle of September in terms of, you know, the, the level of reserves and cash in the system being low, everybody knew that before it ever happened. It wasn't like this was some unpredictable thing. That's what that's what really makes it uh, interesting and noteworthy here is that here you had this seasonal low point in the calendar that everybody knew was there. In fact, everybody knew it to the penny. We all knew what what, what was going to happen. We all knew that there was a, there was a shortage of liquidity. And yet it yet something erupted from it anyway, which tells you that it wasn't the seasonal low point that caused the, the issue. It was the lack of liquidity, the lack of elasticity in the system that actually created this, this eruption. And that's why it was temporary. It was not that, you know, it wasn't the fact that the Fed came in with these overnight repo operate. That didn't fix the situation. The bottleneck just passed. And so what it was was it, it actually was a dress rehearsal for when things might actually go wrong. Because it's, what it showed was that when liquidity really does get low and things start to get a little bit out of imbalance, there is effectively nobody left to step in and provide liquidity as needed. So you ask yourself, and believe me, you got to believe that all the banks and financial counterparties around the world, especially the liquidity dealers that are thinking about this themselves, you know, ask yourself, if that was just a dress rehearsal and the repo rate got up into double digits, 
what happens if this was a real thing? What happens if we really do get into some kind of trouble? That's the thing that everybody needs to be asking is that, yeah, this was a calendar thing, a predictable thing that turned into something ugly. And that's 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 really the message here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And just to clarify, I wasn't saying that they were lying about those events. I just meant that they were trying to make it sound like there's nothing to be concerned about here because it's just these two fluke things that happen. And I'm so I'm saying then why, why do they need a permanent Fed repo facility to deal with this stuff if it's, you know, just a, a one off little blip that, you know, oh, don't listen to Zero Hedge when they're saying this is a you know sign of some deep underlying problem. Yeah, um, well, that, part, part mm-hmm. of that is, too, because, you know, nobody really under, understands this stuff. You know, what is CNBC going to say to defend them a little bit here? You know, what else are they going to say? They have no idea what's going on in the repo market. So if somebody comes up with a plausible sounding explanation, that's what they're going to run with, especially if it comes down from official channels. But mm-hmm. I can tell you conversations I've had with people in the media, conversations I've had with people in, in, inside the central bank, they have no idea what happened that day. They still don't have, I mean, even, even some of the mainstream news stories were came, that came out afterwards, like, you know, we're, this is a little weird, but it, it really seems like the Fed didn't know what was going on. And they really probably should have, because again, you know, what happened was the seasonal bottleneck. That should not have been a problem. The fact that it was a problem and it's caused such a disruption, especially a public disruption, that's indicative of something else. And that's where, you know, my main message to most people is it's something else. There's something else going on here that you need to understand. And when you start opening that door, you get into all this other stuff. Let's take a break from my discussion with Jeff Snyder to talk about what else the Laura Murphy report. So if you're listening to this episode with great interest, then you also should be interested in the stuff that I do with Carlos Lara, where we look at the financial sector from an Austrian perspective. And in recent issues, I've been covering things like the flare-up in the repo market and Carlos as well. And so uh, check out the sample issues and information on how you can subscribe. Go to bobmurphyshow.com slash LMR. Okay, well, why don't we, I mean, obviously we could talk for a long time on these things. Maybe what we should transition to is I know you recently gave a presentation at the uh, Libertarian Scholars Conference that the Mises Institute hosts. So, do you maybe want to just sort of give the big picture? Um, what, what was your what was your presentation there? The big picture was, um, you know, my my first message was, hey, look, what happened in mid September wasn't out of the blue. This is something that's been building for a year and a half. And oh, by the way, if you know how to interpret the financial market signals, you could see this thing coming whether it be euro dollar futures, swap spread, you know, a bunch of this fixed income stuff and the more complex and bizarre stuff that goes on in this, this global marketplace, they were all telling you way in the middle of last year that something wasn't right, that the liquidity system was was not functioning the way it should function, and that there was this, this, this strong, what the Fed called, strong worldwide demand for safe assets, both for re- reasons of the repo market, you know, this collateral thing that we've been talking about, but also the just risk perception, the idea that, hey, if there's building liquidity risk that's not going to go away, we probably want to own the, the safest assets. And so that's why, you know, in the middle of 2018, for example, the euro dollar futures curve and euro dollar futures is, you know, probably a complex topic. We don't want to spend a lot of time on it, but it's essentially a money curve that looks at the future of where the Federal Reserve is going to set monetary policy. So the euro dollar futures curve inverted all the way back in June of 2018, which said this massive marketplace was expecting that rate cuts were going to happen. And at, at, at the time, everybody thought, hey, there's nothing but rate hikes throughout, uh, you know, for the foreseeable future. And here in the middle of 2018 was this big market saying, wait a minute, something's wrong here. Something's wrong here. You're seeing it in the federal funds market. You're seeing it in repo a little bit. 
But we're starting to see things in collateral system. You know, there was a violent event on May 29th of 2018. So this this liquidity, all these liquidity indications that we have for this global dollar system had turned negative in the middle of 2018. And over time, it's just been slowly directing us towards something is not right here. Something is building. Something's going the wrong way. It, it has to do with collateral. It has to do with liquidity. And it has to do with, you know, the function of the dealer, the dealer parts of the system. And the overriding message behind that is this isn't the first time this has happened. This is actually the fourth time we've had this liquidity, this global dollar shortage erupt. And the first one, obviously, you know, we've been talking about the first one was 2007 and 2008. But there's been two additional liquidity problems, global dollar shortages that have erupted along the way. And this is just the fourth in the series. And the reason it's the fourth in the series is because what I said at the outset is the global monetary system has never been fixed since 2007. It doesn't mean it's been completely broken. It doesn't function. It functions only intermittently. And so that's why we have these, these periods where it looks like the economy is fine. It looks like markets are fine. And then this, everything pulls back and you get these these double shortages that, that, that uh, develop and they disrupt the, the economic system. Then they go away a little bit and then they come back a little bit. And so we've just been we've been cycling back and forth between shortage and not shortage. But the whole system as the system as a whole has remained unfixed throughout. Well, let me ask you this. What would be and this might be a tough question, but. It might help people understand your diagnosis of what's wrong with the global monetary system at this point to say what, in your view, what would be like some good policies or, you know, what should they transition to if, if you had a magic wand? <laughs> that's the that's the real question. And that I think the, the answer to that is it's not really possible to answer because we still don't really know exactly, you know, all the stuff that goes on out there. Not only do we not know it. We don't know how big it is. We don't know how much it actually happens. It's very difficult. You know, when we talk about shadow money. That's literally the truth. This stuff takes place beyond our capacity to directly observe these kinds of things. We see we see the effects of these things in the way prices behave and the way various markets move. You know, there's liquidity indications I'm talking about. So we see the indirect effects of what goes on in the shadows, but we don't really know what goes on in the shadows. So to you know, how do we fix the system? Well, step one has got to be we have to define it first. We have to really get into the shadows and take a flashlight in there and look through all of the corners. And I think what you're going to find in them is a lot more of and a lot lot different kinds of things that goes on than what we're we're prepared to really understand and really you know how do we transition from what is that doesn't work into something that will work. And you really have to be careful about that. You know how do you how do you replace where we are now with where we want to go? Because that can make it worse, just trying to go from something bad to something good. You can get involved into a, a lot of negatives, a lot of uh, winners and losers there, too. So that's a, that's a long-winded way of, of avoiding your question. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I respect that. I mean, because the, the problem with most economists is they would go ahead and pontificate with confidence on something they really don't know they're talking about. Um, and then when it, when it blows up in their face, they would just say, yes, just as I predicted. Um, so maybe let me try it this way, then. It's... Um, I mean, do you, do you think that what the Fed and other central banks did in 2008 was like, you know, a necessary move given the bad situation they were in? Or do you think that just set us up for a worse crash? You know, do you have any thoughts on, on those areas or those types of issues? Well, what the Fed did was essentially smoke and mirrors. You know, again, we talked about before that their idea was that, hey, if people think we're printing money and we're, we're contributing to currency elasticity, we're creating liquidity. That's what we want them to think, because if they believe that, then they'll start spending, they'll start doing all these, you know, businesses will invest, businesses will hire because they think that the Fed has got it covered. 
And if they can think that the Fed is being inflationary, all the better from the Fed's perspective. What the system was saying is, hey, no, we need some actual effective shadow money. And I think what happened, you know, a lot of uh, specific crisis instances, not just 2008, but 2011, too, um, the Fed said, you know, we don't know what we're doing here. We, we have no idea how to actually fix it. So what we're going to do is we're just going to keep repeating QE and keep, you know, zero interest rate policy with the hopes that the economy will fix itself. And that will convince the dealers to start doing these things that they used to do before. They were trying to get the cart before the horse. So what I'm saying is, hey, let's put the horse before the cart like it's supposed to. Let's let's study the monetary system. Let's get a real handle on shadow money. Let's get a real handle on the shadows and figure out what's actually going on in it. And then once we get the monetary system fixed and stabilized, that will bring about the, the effective economic recovery. And the thing is, you know, I don't think the, the Fed has you – know, no central bank, not just the Fed, but you know, no central banker is in anywhere close to that kind of position. They're going to stick with everything's fine, everything's fine, everything's fine. And that's another, another important point about what happened last month was that, you know, again, that's what, that's what Jay Powell came out with. Yeah, we're, we're cutting interest rates because everything's fine. Yeah, we're doing these overnight repo operations that are now essentially permanent because everything's fine. So there's not a lot of appreciation for the idea that maybe things are not fine. And maybe things are not fine, not just recently, but in a, in a big picture sense. Mm-hmm. Um, just with the remaining time here, I have one little quick question for you is, or, or, and you alluded to this earlier, you were talking about, you know, yeah, even though we, the Fed has, or the federal government, excuse me, has been doing a stellar job trying to provide safe assets to the private sector, meaning they've been run up the, the debt. Uh, an alarming pace. Um, there were some regulatory changes. And so there, do you, do you have in mind, because I know, you know, I've seen independently some other people commenting, for example, on, you know, this re- repo flare up that just happened. And they were saying things like, um, yeah, well, the changes in, you know, in the Basel requirements and then Dodd-Frank, it's certain financial institute. It's not just their um, reserve requirements, because of course the the financial system as a whole right now still has plenty of excess reserves. So that clearly, you know, can't be a bottleneck at least vis-a-vis the, you know, 2007 and earlier, but that for capital requirements, like large banks are now supposed to be able to show, for example, that they could self-fund all their liquidity needs for 30 days. And the, the point, you know, the, the, the reason for that was the idea of, of putting those new regulations in place was that we don't want these large banks that could topple, you know, the system if they go down, we don't, you know, we want them to sort of be self-sufficient so regulars and, and the central bankers don't need to worry about them, or at least they have some breathing room. But yet, perversely, that means even if there are plenty of treasuries in the system on the aggregate, if they're being held by some of these large institutions that need them for regulatory purposes, well, then they can't give them up even for short-term loans. So what's your reaction to that sort of line of argument? Yeah, it's one that I've heard all throughout. Um, the idea that the liquidity coverage ratio, which is what you're talking about, the, the Basel three rule that says that you have to have enough HQLA, which is high quality liquid assets, in order to fund your operations for 30 days, um, that effectively creates what a, a liquidity reserve of HQLA. But HQLA isn't what everybody thinks it is. It's not just U.S. Treasuries. There's, there's all sorts of junk in that, too, including mortgage bonds. And again, it's a lot of smoke and mirrors, too. But to your point, um, you know, people have been blaming regulations throughout, but all the regulations did was codify what banks had been doing since Bear Stearns nearly failed. In other words, banks have been holding more treasuries 
out of prudence because they real they had a, they saw them they, they had a scare they had a near death experience a lot of them did and it wasn't just Bear Stearns it was Lehman Wachovia AIG and AIG by the way that got involved you know the reason AIG failed was securities lending business not credit default swaps all of the stuff I've been talking about collateral so the banking system saw 2008 for what it was and it has responded by you know becoming very shy about liquidity functions about you know holding safe assets. And the LCR came in later and said, yeah, you should hold safe assets. Well, we're already doing that. So I don't find that particularly as a, you know, I don't find that particularly convincing as an explanation, certainly not for what happened last month. So, but I understand why people hold on, you know, why do they think that regulations must matter? Because in the absence of any other explanation, what else could it be? And, then, and that sounds plausible. The idea that that banks are, are forced by the government to hold safe assets, and here they are holding safe assets. So that must be what's what's going on. But what I'm saying is, no, that, that's not really what's going on. There's a there's a systemic issue that has been unresolved, and we're in the middle of the next iteration of it. Okay, so let me just make sure. So you're to paraphrase your response or part of it. You're saying. Yes, it is true that there are increased regulatory requirements in the wake of the 2008 financial crisis, sort of like how the government's always, you know, closing the barn door after the horses run away. Yeah, um, they're, they're always fighting the last crisis. <laughs> yeah. So, so yeah, they passed a bunch of stuff to insist that banks beef up their capital reserves or, or their capital buffer. Their liquidity um, reserves. Yeah. But even so, you're saying they would have, the banks would have done that anyway. Because, they already you know, did. Yeah, they already you, did you, long before. Yeah, you don't need somebody in Washington telling you, here's how to not have your company fail. Yeah, and the LCR and the HQLA wasn't meant for the banks. It was meant for you and me. It was meant to. It was meant for people to be reassured that the government is on top of everything and this will never happen again. Okay, so yeah, so we don't literally pull out our currency and we have $100 bills under our mattress that we right, leave our money right. in the system. I, oh, they got it under, yeah. We got it. We got this. Don't worry about it. Okay. We, we even have some numbers for you. We've got we've got liquidity ratios for you to be mm-hmm. reassured by, even though the capital ratios we created were completely worthless in the last crisis. Uh, Jeff, all these institutions have passed a stress test, so please, yeah. I would, you know, <laughs> even more numbers. Drop the cynicism. Yeah, these are computer models that that vetted everything. So there you go. Right. Okay. Well, uh, how about just in the remaining few minutes here? Um, can you give us your thought? I mean, so. What it sounds to me like you're saying, but I don't want to put words in your mouth, and I realize you're being um, very humble here and trying to be careful about, you know, what you can say and what you're not sure about. But I mean, is it is it correct to say there there were imbalances, to use a generic term, in the global financial system that came to a head in the fall of 2008? Central banks dumped a bunch of money into the system and. And so that, you know, maybe even just because of psychology and it got people to, to stop panicking and and that sort of got us through it, but they clearly didn't solve the underlying problem. And so is that going to come back? And then, you know, is, is, do you expect there to be another crisis comparable to what happened in 2008 in the near future or, you know, that that, that kind of issue? Can you speak to that? Yeah, and I would I would alter your, your, your phrasing a little bit. Um, the central banks came in in 2008, but that's not what ended the crisis. What ended the crisis was mark to market. Uh, and that's, you know, that's a separate issue when you get into all of that. Um, essentially, the collateral balance sheet issues I'm really talking about, that's what ended it. You know, the fact that the Fed came in, they didn't come in with money. They came in with everybody calls money that effectively isn't money. So that that's that. And, and so because of that, and in a large part because of that, that's why we still have this existing crisis because the Fed has never supplied – you know, currency elasticity. The Fed has never supplied what the what the private system actually needs. 
And what we're dealing with now is, uh, you know, as I said before, this fourth iteration of this shortage that develops. And so, you know, to your point, you know, everybody wants to know what does that mean? Where are we going? What does that mean? What what comes next? Does that mean that there's another crash and, you know, right over the horizon? You know, I can't answer that. But what I can say is that, you know, the imbalances are extreme and that there are downside risks here. It doesn't mean that 2008 will repeat because nothing ever repeats exactly the same thing, exactly the same way. I don't think we're going to see banks failing because, look, banks are being, especially American banks, are being very proactive about their liquidity risk. They're adding safe assets in advance of what might happen. So I don't think you're going to see Lehman Brothers. You're not going to see another Bear Stearns. You might see some overseas institutions get into some trouble, uh, especially some banks maybe in Germany. But that's a difference, you know. That's the 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 offshore nature. I don't think you're going to see the rash of bank failures that we saw in 2008 because, in a lot of ways, without the regulations, these banks have learned their lesson. They're protecting themselves liquidity-wise. But that doesn't mean that that won't lead to bad things in the U.S. economy and the global economy, and for other parts of the the, the financial systems too, because they are not protected. All it has done is changed the the sort of epicenter of where the liquidity problem will erupt hardest from the banking system to the not banking system. It's kind of moved the target. And it's hard to predict, if, you know, how will that actually work itself out if something really does start to materialize? It's, it's really tough to, to say ahead of time. Okay, well, fair enough. That's a good, <laughs> a good, a good uh, ending point on this. Well, thank you so much for your time, um, Jeff. My, my guest, folks, has been Jeff Snyder of Alhambra Investments. Uh, thank you for your time, Jeff. My pleasure, Bob. Thanks for having me come on. And remember, folks, this is BobMurphyShow.com slash 68, where I'll put links to uh, various articles that we've been talking about that Jeff has written and some other related materials. And uh, until next time, we'll see you then. Bye, folks. You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit BobMurphyShow.com.